Well, good morning, church. If you have your Bibles, whether in print or digital edition, uh, if you will turn, however you turn, uh, to Philippians, to the book of Philippians. If you're new to the Bible uh, and you're wondering where Philippians is, it's about three quarters of the way in. Uh, you should see it there. About three quarters of the way in, it's probably only about four or five pages total in your Bible, depending on how your Bible is laid out. So the book of Philippians, Pastor Mark started this study for us uh, just uh, a couple of weeks ago, and so I'm excited to pick up where he left off. I'm hoping to get a little bit further than he did. He only got two verses in, um, so uh, since he's not here to defend himself, I thought I would point that out. So hopefully we'll get a little bit uh, further this morning. I have an ambitious goal of nine verses, so all the way, God willing, to verse 11. So the book of Philippians, as Pastor uh, Mark opened up last, uh, or last time uh, in the book, he pointed out that this is a book written by the Apostle Paul. He's writing from a Roman prison, and he's writing to the church of Philippi. That's why we call it Philippians. Uh, and he actually went ahead and covered th- those first two verses. So let's read those again together. Verses 1 and 2. Paul and Timothy, slaves of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and the deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now if you recall, Paul and Silas, when they were back in Philippi, when the church was started, uh, one of the, the biggest events happened because Paul and Silas were thrown in jail. They were thrown in jail for healing a slave girl, and the slave girl's job was she had a spirit of divination by which she could tell what she thought Uh, the will of God was. So there's a bit of irony going on here. Now we have Paul in jail again, writing back to the Philippians, calling himself a slave of Christ, and saying he is declaring what he knows to be the will of God to the church in Philippians. And Pastor Mark last time gave us a very helpful theme for the book of Philippians, and I want us to look at that again together. His theme that he gave us is, our life is fulfilling when we joyfully surrender to the will and the work of the Lord Jesus as He has ordered it for our good and His glory. I think this is a very fitting theme for the book, uh, and I think you'll see it fits right in to the sermon this morning. And it will help advance I think these nine verses help advance that theme. So let's now look at verses 3 through 11 together there in Philippians chapter 1. Let me read that for us. Paul writing to the Philippians. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. 
It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Verse 9, And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Let's go to the Lord and ask His blessings on the reading and the hearing and the preaching of His Word. Let's pray. Father, we would know nothing about You if You had not been so kind to reveal Yourself to us. That we can talk about You intelligently is amazing grace. That we hold in our hands the very Word of God is a staggering claim. And it's amazing that it's true. And so, Father, would we be, by Your grace and by Your Spirit, would we be an eager people gathered around Your Word this morning, looking for hope, direction, sustenance, life. Father, thank You for the life of the Apostle Paul. Thank You for every stripe, every scar, every tear, every prayer, every time he shared the Gospel. Thank You for how You used the sacrifice of his life and how even this morning, by Your grace, it will even bear fruit among us. But far more, Father, we thank You for our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank You that we have a Master, that we have a Lord, that we have a Savior. And we pray by the preaching of Your Word this morning that His name would be exalted. I pray for every hearer of the Word this morning that You would help each of us to hear Your Word, to obey, and to follow. And so we ask all these things to You, Father. We ask them through the strong name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, our Brother, our Savior. And we believe now that by Your Spirit You will move. In Your name we pray. Amen. On this day, 98 years ago, in the northeast corner of the country of France, a very bloody battle was underway. It's the spring of 1918, recognizing that their days might be numbered. Time was running out as the U.S. was sending a mass amount of forces to Europe. The Germans launched what would be their final offensive of World War I. This now very famous spring offensive brought some of the bloodiest days of fighting in all of world history. And one of those battles was the Battle of the Belie Woods, Belie Woods in northeastern France. The German army was trying to poke through the Allies' defense line. They needed to get through the Belie Woods and therefore they could traverse the Marne River. The U.S. Marines were sent in and they were told, do not let them out of those woods. 
The Marines were heavily outnumbered by the Germans. They were taking on heavy casualties. Their French counterparts suggested that they should quickly retreat. This brought about what is now considered a very famous retort given to us by Marine Captain Lloyd Williams who responded to his, to his French counterpart, Retreat, son, we just got here. The Marines were unbelievably relentless in this battle. They pursued the Germans down into the Blue Woods not once, not twice, not three times, not four times, not five times, but on six separate occasions said, let's go in after them again. The Germans were overcome, blown away by their tenacity and fortitude. We have left from one German uh, soldier's journal that he wrote, all I can tell you is that those boys on the other side are one pure, reckless group of fellows. Another German called them devil Dogs, a label that our U.S. Marines still to this day wear is a badge of honor. It took the Marines almost 30 days of, blood, of bloody battle to overcome the Germans. And overcome they did. This would begin to turn the spring offensive. It would only be months before there would be surrender and the war would be over. And yet, it cost close to 2,000 Marines their lives. Over 8,000 other wounded. I thought a lot about those battles this week, that battle in particular. And I thought about those boys in those trench holes. And it occurred to me, it's not hard at all to imagine the deep, intense camaraderie between these young men that developed in those days. In fact, one of the things that we've learned as soldiers return from fierce fighting, especially ones who return from prolonged battles, is that the level of loyalty and commitment that they have to one another is incredibly deep and it's intense. It is so deep and intense that they often have a hard time even adjusting to civilian peacetime life as they deeply long for the type of love and camaraderie that they once enjoyed in the friendship of those trenches. As you turn your attention with me this morning to the book of Philippians, you're looking at a soldier, Paul, writing from captivity, a Roman prison, to his former comrades and church members at the church of Philippi. I'm telling you, the only way to make sense of the bond between Paul and the Philippians is to consider it like the bond between soldiers of war. These are not mere acquaintances. They are not merely family friends. I often try to look at a passage uh, and think about it. What if I've never read this passage before? What if also I'm pretty unfamiliar with the Bible? How would this read to me? And one of the things I thought of this week is, you know, honestly, 
If I read this, I, I would think that Paul is incredibly prone to overstatement. I mean, maybe I would suggest to get a job writing Hallmark cards or presidential campaign speeches. It just seems so over the top. Unless, unless you view it through the lens of a soldier writing to another soldier. Then it seems fitting. There are really multiple ways we could look at the passage. The, the angle I want us to look at this morning is what does this tell us about the church? I want us to consider three different descriptions as we walk through it. I'm hoping you will see the church is not, by it is by no means a building. As the church of Philippi would certainly not have had a building and definitely not have had anything they would call a campus. I'm hoping you will see the church is as much a verb as it is a noun. Alright, that leads us all the way to our very first point. Church, believers, partnering together. So Paul opens by telling the Philippians his reason for his extreme thankfulness and joy over them. Look with me at verses 3 through 5. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, Always, in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. Because, that's a reason statement. Now he's given the reason. Now he's anchoring why he can have the prayer of joy and thanksgiving. Because of your partnership in the gospel from the very first day until now. Now, one of the themes you find throughout Paul's letters is a theme of thankfulness. Paul is thankful. He's thankful for the amazing work of God in his life. And here he spends time thanking God for the work of God in the lives of the Philippians. His reason is given in verse 5. Paul is thankful because of their partnership. Now, it depends on your translation. Some of your translations, instead of having partnership, might have translated that Greek word, which is koinia. They might have translated it as fellowship. I actually think partnership is a better translation, just given how weak the word fellowship tends to serve our modern vocabulary. The word partnership in English means an agreement to cooperate to advance a common interest. Paul tells us, that the common interest he and the Philippians have is the gospel because of your partnership in the gospel. Now the word gospel, it comes from a Greek word and it means, just literally translated, it means good news. So if you ever see the word gospel in your Bible, you can immediately think good news. That's, that's what it means. The good news is found in a person. A Jewish man grew up in the town of Nazareth who went by the name of Jesus. The good news is that this man, Jesus, is more than just a mere man. He, according to this news, is also the Son of God. He is the promised Messiah. Now Paul uses the Greek word for Messiah, Christ, throughout this passage. It only takes 
A very cursory read of those first 11 verses, 1 through 11, of this book to realize the importance of this person. I think it's easy for us to miss this, though, because we get so used to terms like Lord and Jesus and Christ that we're almost numb to them. So I was trying to figure out, how how can I make this more explicit? So it occurred to me that maybe the way to do this is a little experiment together. In order for us to get to better, uh, more sound orthodoxy together, we're going to experiment in a, a very quick joint heresy. I'm going to read the first 11 verses of Philippians and substitute the name Bob. I just picked Bob, by the way. Maybe it's all the Bob the Builder. I don't know Bob, so uh, I just picked Bob. Uh, We're going to substitute the name Bob in the place of Jesus. No, (laughs) good luck for the rest of the day, Bob. Um, The title King in the place of Christ and the title Master in the place of Lord. All right, so now listen as I read this and tell me if you pick up on what I'm after. Paul and Timothy. Servants of King Bob, to all the followers of King Bob, who are at Philippi with the leaders and servants, grace to you and peace from God our Father and our Master Bob the King. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you always in every prayer of mine to you for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Bob the King. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart for your partakers with me of grace, both in imprisonment and the defense and the confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of King Bob. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of the King, filled with fruit of righteousness that comes through Bob the King to the glory and praise of God. Alright, so here's my point. I think if you pick this up, it's just a letter, just a piece of literature, and you read it. If you're assessing it, there's one question that's going to come quicker than any other question. Who's King Bob? Right? Who is this Bob? Because everything is centered on who he is. Friends, all of the Bible is centered on the claim that a man from Nazareth was both human and the God of the universe. Furthermore, the Bible puts forward the claim that he lived among us and lived a beautiful, sinless, perfect life. Now, if that doesn't feel radical to you, let me tell you somebody it felt really radical to. A guy by the name of Paul. Paul was likely born the exact same year as Jesus of Nazareth. Paul would have been born in Turkey, but because of his schooling, he quickly made his way down from Turkey to Jerusalem. And his entire adolescence, his early adulthood, all would have been spent there in Jerusalem. We have every reason, given the time frame and given Paul's influence, to think that he would have actively worked to see Jesus killed, executed, done away with. And it makes sense why. 
Paul was dedicated to the Jewish tradition. And now you've got some counterpart of his, someone uh, uh, his exact same age, in his early 30s, claiming that he is the promised Messiah, demanding allegiance from others. And to add to that matter, he even claims to be God. So please, don't hear this as feel-good religious trite. Paul is thanking the Philippians for their partnership in this, albeit good, very wild, very far-reaching, very bold news that Jesus of Nazareth, who was executed in Jerusalem, can rescue them and will one day rule the entire world. The full picture looks like this. Every one of us is in danger of eternal ruin because of our sin against God. Short of rescue, God will surely make us pay for our debt of sin. But this man, Jesus, who is God in flesh, who is brutally executed on a cross, and God, His dad, willingly tormented Him so that He paid the price of our sins. This is the claim of Scriptures. And after dying on a Friday afternoon, He got up and walked out of the grave on a Sunday morning. And He proclaimed, He taught, that anyone who will willingly bow the knee to Him and submit to Him as Master will now have peace with God. Hence why Paul begins the letter to Philippians by saying, grace to you and peace. That is, I greet you by considering the incredible gift of God. We are no longer His enemies. We have been reconciled. So friend, you've heard the claims of the Bible and the demands on our life. The Bible claims that this Nazarene Jesus will one day rule the world. And that every knee will one day bow and there's coming a time when the offer of rescue will no longer stand. I'm not calling you to walk an aisle or pray a prayer or sign a card or start listening to Caleb or to wear Christian t-shirts or homeschool your kids or vote Republican or eat at Chick-fil-A. The Bible is making a much stronger claim about Jesus of Nazareth, and in so doing is making claims on our lives as a result. There is good news. There is a rescuer. And He is the greatest, the kindest, the strongest man to ever live. When you understand this, I think you see the weightiness of why Paul would be so thankful that there is a group of people in Philippi who believe this, who honestly believe it. And he would be thankful that they have a partnership in the Gospel. Well, as good as this news might be, it is not often welcome news. Paul and the Philippians both paid dearly for this news. Look with me at verse 7. 
it is right for me to feel this way about you all. Because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and the defense and confirmation of the gospel. Paul expresses here his deep camaraderie with the Philippians, as they both shared in the same gift. What is the gift? The gift is the good news. And it has, it has brought both of them imprisonment and scrutiny. Paul is acknowledging, hey, we have fought in trenches together. And he is thanking the Philippians for never ceasing their support. One of the most beautiful pictures in all of missions history, occurred in this town with Paul, recorded in, in, in Acts 16. By the way, good Sunday afternoon read, go read Acts 16. It'll take you like four and a half minutes. It is an incredible story. It's an incredible story. It's the story of when Paul gets called to Macedonia, uh, by the Macedonian, to go over to Philippi. Anyway, anyway, after being arrested... You remember Paul and Silas were, were whipped bareback with rods. They're given no medical treatment. They're just put, they just put chains on them and throw them in the jail. And sometime around midnight, I love, the best part about Acts 16 is, is how chill it is. I mean, it just says this stuff. Nope, there's no lead up or anything. Around midnight, they decide to have prayer service. Why not? So they have a prayer service. They're singing hymns. They're praying. And what happens? An earthquake. And what is the earthquake? Central strike of the earthquake? The jail. And what doors just happen to open up? Their prison doors. And what just happens to fall off? Their chains. Right? And so then, Paul and Silas are, are getting ready to walk out, and they see the uh, jailer about to kill himself, and they stop him. I mean, this is just, it's just like two sentences. And, and they share the good news. He believes. Why not? And he's saved. And then you get this amazing picture. Just picture this. This happened. That night, Paul and Silas are walked to his house. And he gets rags and water. And he cleans the blood and the grit off their backs. He's cleaning their wounds. Next sentence. Paul and Silas take the Philippian jailer and his entire family and they go down to the river and he baptizes them. Paul knows what it feels like to be in the trenches. He is writing to those whom there is a deep partnership with. You clean my wounds. I baptized your boy. There is deep camaraderie and partnership in the gospel. The partnership has cost them both and they are committed to it. Brothers and sisters, at the center of who we are has to be a deep-seated partnership. In seeing the good news go forth, we have to work to see the gospel spread and increase in our families, in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, and to the ends of the earth. This is our common mission. This is our blue woods. 
The church cannot merely be a weekly activity or central facility. It has to represent a common mission to see the good news go out. And so I challenge you. I challenge you. If you're a follower of Jesus, how are you actively serving to see the good news go out? The way in which we serve, certainly it's going to all look differently, but we all have the same responsibility to partner together in seeing the gospel go forth. First point, the church is believers who partner together. Second point, the church is believers loving each other. Church is believers loving each other. We've seen Paul's love for the Philippians as, as he described how he thanks God and his remembrance of them in verse 3 and, and, and how it's right for him. He actually defends himself there in verse 7. It's, 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 it's right for me to feel this way. And then in verse 8 through 11, I want you to see Paul say that he prays for them that they may love each other similarly. Look at verse 8. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. That's love. That is deep love for them. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. So Paul is praying that the Philippians would grow in their love for one another and that they may use the life of Paul as an example of how to follow in that. Paul prays that their love would be knowledgeable and wise. That is, Paul is praying that the reasons that they love each other and the content of their love would be pure and right. Love for the sake of love is vapid and unfortunately very popular in our culture. Paul is praying that the Philippians will know their faith and then it will be out of, his, out of this knowledge that they will grow in their love and commitment to one another. As you read this passage, the, the love and affection of Paul is palpable for, for the Philippians. Paul is telling them, that he spends time praying for them that God would strengthen their love for each other. This is all across the New Testament. I mean, all across the New Testament. It'll blow your mind if you just go looking for how often we are told, love each other, love each other. And it starts from the mouth of Jesus our Lord. Just go look at what Jesus taught in the hours right before he died. The central theme of his teaching is that we love each other. It is the hallmark of Christian existence and of authenticity. And yet, let's just be honest. Doesn't it all too often seem that deep love for other church members is absent in many congregations? But I'm not so sure this isn't connected to the prior point. I'm not so sure this is not more or just as much connected to our lack of partnership together. If we're not partnership together on a common task, if we're not sacrificing together, if we're not serving alongside each other, then aren't we missing out on opportunities for deep love that are experienced by Paul and the Philippians? I don't know if you've ever been on a cruise, um, but when you go on a cruise... 
they often give you a dinner table assignment, and, and they're folks that you eat dinner with, folks you don't know until you get there, and you eat dinner together every, every night throughout the cruise. And I've, I've had the pleasure of going on two cruises, um, and I met some folks that I, that I enjoyed eating dinner with. Uh, i, I got to be honest, I, I don't recall ever needing any counseling to get over my separation of them, though, and a deep love that we formed together when a cruise is over. I've got to be honest, I don't even know any of their names. But isn't it completely opposite for the boys in the Blue Woods? Well, I'm sure they did not miss the bullets whirling past them. I know they missed the deep love and camaraderie that they enjoyed in those trenches. I'm sure for the rest of their lives, they had memories and affection and love for each other that they never could get over. Maybe the reason love is lacking in churches is because life in church feels often more cruise-like than it does battle-like. Come at this time, sit in your seat, get served what you wish, leave a tip, and then go take a nap. I'm afraid church life can often, if we're not careful, be summed up like that. I've shared with many of you that I I had the pleasure of spending a summer in Romania, and I landed there about a decade after communism fell. And when communism fell, so also the uh, persecution of the Christians also immediately ceased. And one of the things that has stuck with me about that that experience was the deep, and I mean deep, every, not every, almost every Christian you talk to, they were concerned that since persecution was now over, the deep love that they had enjoyed together as believers would also dwindle. They, they weren't asking for persecution to, to come back, but they were acknowledging that much of the love that they enjoyed was directly connected to the sacrifice that they sacrificed together. Alright, so we've seen that a church may be described as believers partnering together. We've seen that it is believers loving each other. Finally, let's consider that it is described church believers hoping together. Now, one of the things, by the word hoping, I don't mean what my son means when he says, I am hoping daddy gives me some candy. That's not, that's wishing. Uh, and poor guy, that's not a, not a very good chance that's going to get fulfilled given the dietetic, Martin Dietetic Committee of one. Who, by the way, has always had a, a woman as their president. So uh, we're not, all right, anyway, okay, all right, all right anyway. Um, by hoping, I mean something closer to I'm hoping the sun remains hot or I'm hoping to get wet when I go swimming. That is, I fully expect that to happen and my world would be very much tossed upside down were either one of those not to take place. So that's it. Keep that in mind when, it, when we say believers Hoping together. Verse 6. I, and, and I am sure of this, 
that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Probably one of the most familiar verses of of Philippians, though the book is chock full of gems, gems like this. But notice that I related this verse not to us merely as individuals, but to the church. So where do I get reason to say this is about church? Well, this is actually one of the very few places that translating from the Greek to good old southern English might actually be helpful. If this were translated into southern English, it might read like this. And I think I have this translation for us next. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in y'all will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. That's actually a better way to translate it from the Greek. Why? Because the word you is plural in the Greek. In fact, every single time in this passage, and I checked every single one of them, every single time you see this second person pronoun, you, every one of those is plural in this passage. Now some of you are quick and on, uh, looking ahead and saying, but wait a second, Tim, in verse 4, and again in verse 7, he actually says you all. So why that? For example, in verse 4, he says, Every prayer of mine for you all. Or in verse 7, It is right for me to feel this way about you all. Yeah, but the word you there is still plural. So actually, if you want to get a really wooden translation, you wouldn't want to have to read it like this, but a really wooden translation from the Greek there would actually be, Every prayer of mine for all of you all. Or, it is right for me to feel this way about all of you all. And so the point is, in fact, Paul is emphasizing that this is about the church and all the church. Okay, so Paul is saying that he is sure, that he confidently expects that the one who began a good work in the Philippians will complete it. There are at least two bad ways to think about our salvation. One is to believe that we start the process by cleaning up our act and then God kind of moves it forward from there. This is often uh, termed with something like this. God helps those who first help themselves, right? You've heard this. Well, it's rubbish. It's unchristian. It's not only absent from the Bible, it's heavily rebuked in the Scriptures. Another bad way to understand our salvation is to believe that God starts the process and we keep it going. This unfortunately became the mantra of the Second Great Awakening that birthed the revival culture. God begins the process of salvation, usually seen through a terrific emotional moment where a person is reborn, and then they are left on their own to go get their lives cleaned up and keep it clean. This this is the central uh, theology of fundamentalism. It's not supported in Scripture. Scripture teaches what Paul just wrote in verse 6. God begins our salvation. He who began a good work in you, church, and God will bring it to completion. We have hope because we know that God will finish that which He started. Can I remind you, again, this is written in the plural. God intends 
that you be part of a group of believers with whom you can partner with and whom you can love. He will complete your salvation through your life and service in that community. And let me show you where I see that in this passage. Look at verse 9 and 10 and 11. Is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. This is a prayer of hope that the Philippians would live with such love and commitment to one another that they would actually grow in their knowledge of truth, grow in their purity of heart, grow in their works of righteousness, so when the day of Christ comes, they, the church, would be a testimony to the glory in the name of God. So God willingly uses churches to which we belong to help us be transformed and changed. Years ago, after joining a gym, that's not the joke, by the way, um, they were giving me a tour of the gym, uh, which began with a climb to the second, uh, uh, to the second floor, climb steps to the second floor. But well, I, I'm convinced they intentionally do this to remind you of why you need your gym membership. So sure enough, the gym rat guide boy um, conducting my tour bounds up the steps like an over-caffeinated gazelle or something. Um, and I don't know why. I guess I was feeling frisky. I was in a gym. Uh, I decided to go up after him and match his pace. So we get to the stop, top of the steps, and I'm dying. I mean, I can barely breathe, right? And he begins his pre-can question number one. He says... Uh, So, Tim, what are your goals? I'm thinking, right now, my goal is to get enough oxygen to have further goals, right? Uh, I don't know what answer. So then, he comes to pre-canned question number two. Would you like to maintain, lose, or gain? What you going for here? Um, I could have kicked uh, Guide Boy down the steps. I wanted to say to him, buddy, I just climbed one flight of steps and I'm looking for the heart-lung machine. I don't think I'm going to just maintain. That's not a good goal for me to just maintain. Actually, you know what I wanted to tell him is, could I get all three? I would like to maintain my lack of gym attendance, gain muscle, and lose weight. Do you have that as a combo? But anyway, um, just maintain. How often do people join churches and the goal is just maintain? How often are churches willing to let members just maintain? My gym didn't want me to get away with that. A church should not let us get away with that. Paul prays for the Philippians that they would have such love Such common commitment, such sacrifice over this incredible news that they would love each other, progress one another, move each other forward as they await the day He knows is coming. We love one another, 
when we prepare one another for the day of hope that we long for in our hearts when King Jesus brings this whole thing to fulfillment. Church. Church is believers partnering together. Church is believers loving each other. Church is believers hoping together.